Welcome to the Snowbrains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, professional mountain guide, an Alaska heli ski guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snowbrains, and I spent four ski seasons in Japan from 2012 to 2015. It was a magical time to be in Japan, and it snowed more than I've ever seen anywhere else on Earth. I also broke my kneecap and blew my ACL while I was there, but it was worth it. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Gunnison Crested Butte. If you're looking for a heart-pounding Colorado ski trip this winter, check out Gunnison and Crested Butte. Ski Crested Butte's legendary extreme terrain for glades, bowls, chutes, and cliffs that would challenge your abilities and keep you coming back for more. After the lifts close, explore Gunnison Valley's mountain towns for unique restaurants and historical Colorado charm. Visit GunnisonCrestedButte.com to start planning your trip. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area. There are few precious places in the world like Alta an independently owned ski area since 1938. Nestled at the top of the Little Cottonwood Canyon, deep in the Wasatch, Alta is a skiers only mountain, known around the globe for its powder skiing. With an average annual snowfall of 538 inches, powder days are a way of life. My guest today is Kit Delorier. Kit was the very first person to ski from each of the legendary seven summits, the highest peak on every continent. She was also the first woman to have won two consecutive World Free Skiing Championship titles in 2004 and 2005. Kit was the 2015 National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. In 2019, Kit was inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Kit has been on the North Face Global Athlete Team since 2005. Hello, Kit. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Really great because you're here because, you know, as I told you before the show, I'm a big fan. I've been following what you do for a long time. So when when did you ski last? It's September. No, it's October now. Uh, when was the last time you skied? Oh, you know, usually I could say like June 6th or something. This year was different for me. The answer is the last day of April in the Brooks Range. Um, oh. It was very different spring for me. Normally being high in the Tetons in the spring is quite literally like as much of a favorite experience for me as skiing beautiful deep winter powder. But I don't know. This year, I was one of those ones who switched sports earlier and really enjoying rock climbing this year. So that's what I morphed into. And the more I reflect on that, I think it's also kind of because it's somehow easier for me to hold on to that image and feeling of my last time skiing way up in the Arctic Refuge so maybe that's why the change this year. I don't know. But April 30th this year was the last time I skied. Very cool. And we'll get in more, get into that more too. I want to learn more about your experience up in the Arctic uh, and why it's so important to you. Uh, how, how many days do you think you skied last season? I never count. And 
I'm sure it's always right around 100, probably a bit more, but something like that. I, that comes up again and again. I feel like I'm the only nerdy one that keeps track. I marketed my every day in my calendar where I went, who I was with, if it was a powder day or not. And almost everybody I interview here, these hardcore skiers are like, yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't keep track. So today, Kit, I, I really want to get into your seven summits experience, uh, your free ride championships, especially your eco-activism, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, National Geographic Adventure of the Year, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, and there's a lot more we could go on. So we're going to start with this rapid fire section, and then we're going to dig down into those deeper stories if that sounds fun. Great. Let's do it. Well, here we go. Rapid fire. How many days do you ski per year? A hundred plus, but I don't count. It's just my way of life. I like it. And, and how- sometimes, to be fair, I have to say, it could be a better than nothing lap on Teton Pass late in the afternoon or you know dawn or a short morning at Jackson Hole, but it's still skiing. I used to have a five-run rule for inbounds and at least one run backcountry, but now that I'm old, any if I put skis on and slide, it's a day. And how many, uh, how many of those, or what percentage do you think of those days are backcountry? I'd say 50-50. Oh, cool. And uh, th- that's partly because I live at the base of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. So skiing there is beyond the fact that it's really fun. It's super easy for me. What's your biggest accomplishment in skiing? I'd have to say the seven summits. Yet I'm also glad um, as of this year to have skied the five highest mountains in the Brooks Range, which is another first. And which is, which is, I, for our listeners, the Brooks Range is, is that far north range in Alaska. Yeah, it, it stretches across northern Alaska, most of northern Alaska, really, in east to west. And uh, yeah, and then also I'd say the free skiing champion titles are definitely in the mix because I don't know if we'll get to this later, so I'll just throw it out there. But I didn't grow up skiing or learning ski racing or being really like professionally coached at any point in my life. So it's pretty special to me that I was able to get to that point uh, and repeat it. But if I got to pick one, I'd have to say the seven summits. That's fascinating. And I do want to jump into that free skiing a little bit later because I didn't realize there was not a great connection between your upbringing and that. And I love that. What's your biggest accomplishment in life? Remaining authentic to myself. How do you define yourself? I'm a soul who connects with the earth and who finds creative space in the mountains. I love deeply. I work for what I believe in. And that includes caring for the people and places that I love. Great answer. Where's your favorite place to ski? The Tetons. And then if you mean ski resort, then definitely Jackson Hole. I like that. Well, I love to hear all of that. And then if you had to pick a few of your favorite mountain ranges, what might they be? Well, obviously the Tetons and the Brooks Range are high on my list, highest on my list, I'd say. Yet I've had life-changing and definitely soul-enriching experiences in a lot of others. Like my formative 20s, I spent in the San Juans in the around Telluride, Colorado. And my first ski expedition was in the Altai Range in Siberia. And that was incredibly special and spiritually mind-blowing. And then, of course, the Himalayas. Yeah, gosh, I can't imagine skiing in the Himalayas. And I'd like to ask you about that Altai later, because that's something I did not know anything about until I read your bio. What would you do if you couldn't ski? I'd probably rock climb. And then if I get to, you know, dream and share other parts of myself, I've uh, the idea of being a regenerative farmer is really oh. grounding to me and maybe even a life coach. 
I love that. Yeah, I think that you'd be great at all that. And what is regenerative uh, farming? So, well, perfect definition you won't get from me, but the concept of agriculture, when you're replenishing the earth, I'll say, while you're using the earth. So you're using all aspects of it, right? So you may, if you're raising pigs, you would let the young nurse as long as they wanted off the mothers, everybody's free range. And um, you have deep respect for the earth always, yeah, working with the seasonal nature. That's great. It sounds like some of the farmers that I met via Michael Pollan's book, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma. Uh, It sounds like they were really focused on that. What scares you the most in the mountains? (sighs) Having an accident that's life-changing. What do you love? Whether for myself or the people around me. Yeah. Yeah, Just having an accident that's life-changing. Absolutely. That is the most terrifying thing to most all of us via one format or another. What do you love most in the mountains? I love the pure freedom to be me without any, you know, other definition. There's no need to explain yourself. There's no need to define yourself like you just asked me. Define yourself. Just pure freedom, connection to myself and to my partners and to the place. And this mental state that is so enjoyable that it's like this relaxed focus. What's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains? Well, okay. There was a really funny little little snafu this spring on my trip in the Brooks Range. You know, I was really excited to climb and ski this mountain, Mount Hoobly. That's the second highest in the Brooks Range and hadn't had a ski descent yet. And I'd been trying to get there for a few years. And there was another aspect of the trip that was important, right? That was the snow science mission I hope we'll talk about later. Yeah. But... I am into climbing these high mountains and I really wanted to go for this peak. And finally we were like within a day and a half strike of it, leaving camp. The snow was terrible. It was thin (laughs) and isothermic and had wind skim all over it. And I was a little bit impatient leaving camp. Not everybody was ready when it was time to go. And so I just took off. My pack was really (laughs) heavy, you know, like 60, 65 pounds. And then I just described how junky the snow was. And I was just skinning up this gentle hill to start up this drainage. And I hit this patch or I came across this patch of snow that uh, one ski just collapsed under the wind skim and the other one didn't. So I really slowly like started to fall over and I was fighting for my balance and eventually I just let it go. And (laughs) of course I look over my shoulder and there are my friends like, you know, five minutes behind me all just standing there watching me laughing. And, (laughs) and I have to say that, you know, right now we're actually working on some final edits to this film that we're making about that trip. And, and that piece made it into the film. (laughs) So everybody else gets to laugh with me because sometimes we got to laugh at ourselves. I, I, love I was it. like, you know, here I am gonna excited to go ski this peak and I just fall over walking out of base camp. <laughs> I love it. And you're the impatient one, right? Trying to get everybody yeah. rallied out and you're the one over on your side. How how tall are these peaks? So they're all around, the highest ones are around 9,000 feet, which doesn't sound that high, yet it's uh, about 7,000 vertical relief from the valley floor. And how many, how many days does it take to get to them? Well, it takes uh, a few days. Depends okay. on where you can fly into, but I'd say this one took us one, two days of approach. So two camps besides space camp and then the summit day. Wow. So they're, they're deep. Yeah, they're deep. So what's the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? In 2013, I was high in the Tetons with a good girlfriend. It was probably a 
five hour approach at least to about 12,000 feet. We climbed up a different exposure than we were skiing, going to ski. And she dropped in first and on the ski cut right at her feet, a wind slab released that cracked across the entirety of the start of the couloir. And she went down really quickly and was right at my feet. Like I was standing there watching her. And so I'll never forget this moment where we locked eyes. No, it was just her and I. So it was like this awareness. It was like this, no words needed. Just I'll never forget the look in her eyes. And I, tried to emulate it back so that she knew I was there and I would do everything I could. And then she slid out of sight and the snow, I could see snow and train. I could see a powder cloud coming from an adjacent couloir draining into this one. And I knew the terrain below was, it constricted and it was full of consequences and it went a long way. And, and sure enough, she did too. And I'll never forget the, uh, the feeling of being alone up there having to wait for the snow to stop moving to start my ski down in rescue mode. And yeah, I just, you know, I turned my phone off. I switched my beacon to receive. The snow was still moving at my feet. And I just looked around in the mountains. I actually remember looking back at the Grand, taking a deep breath and getting some inspiration. And then I skied down. Well, it was a long way to ski down with a receive transceiver in your hand on receive um, and not, not pick anything up. And you start to question yourself, you know, how slow should I be going? How fast should I be going? Right. Um, And uh, yeah. And then eventually I came across a ski pole and then just like our training says, once you start to see belongings, then you got to holler to see if you can get any contact. And I did, and I could hear her down below yelling back to me. So I skied up to her and, she was sitting on top of the snow and had taken over a 1500 foot ride. Whoa. And then, uh, I've been wilderness first responder trained forever, uh, since I was probably 21. So I take that seriously and, you know, hate to tell stories like this, that you have to use it. Um, but I think it's really important and it's responsible to yourself and to your partners. So I was able to assess what was going on and, um, didn't seem like there was anything life-threatening in the moment, although there was definitely potential for head injury and some other injuries were there, um, but nothing that was going to potentially take her life in the near future. And she had lost a ski. And so, you know, that kind of like partnership where you think together in crisis moments was something that I really took away from that. And she and I had the same boot size. So I gave her my skis and I skied out on her one ski remaining. Wow. uh, Yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was horrible and traumatic, yet turned out okay. The locked eyes at the beginning of the avalanche, that's, that is, I think, something a lot of people can relate to, you know, when you have that intense moment of looking at someone in the eye when things are just going to hell That'll take with me. That was a great story, Kit. Thank you very much. And I'm so glad there was a, a good outcome. But sometimes there's not. And uh, you know, I feel like we don't talk about this enough in the mountains, but it's part of it. We do lose people. Uh, how many friends have you lost in the mountains, Kit? 
Well, I mean, friends, friends of friends, Mm -hmm. legends that I've admired from afar or slightly closer. It's so many and I don't exactly know. And and I'm not a counter. (laughs) And I also don't really want to put numbers on in place of the the faces and the energy and the connection that I have felt and feel from those people. Um, But if we're going to talk about super close friends, then it's the one and only Hillary Nelson that we lost last week skiing off the summit of Montesquieu. So I'm, yeah, I'm deep in grief on that one. And I imagine I always will be at some point. She, she was an amazing human and she was like a sister to me. And we had some parallel paths in our lives as mountain people and mothers and teammates at, on the North Face athlete team. And um, it's just sad to think of this world without her because she made it a better place. Well, thank you for that. And yeah, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know Hillary at all. And I was very affected by it. I had really intense dreams for a night or two. And uh, yeah, and it's it's every day. It's really been on my mind. So I can't imagine what it's like for you. So thank you for sharing that. How many avalanches have you been in? Well, I just told that one story about me being the rescuer. But since I wasn't carried, then the answer is really just one. Oh, wow. It was a wet slide off the summit of Mount Wilson in the San Juans. Wow, which is and, a, four, a 14er, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a 14er. Mm-hmm. And somehow I was able to do a dance with my feet and skis to keep pulling them up out of the start of the slab enough times that I finally got in position to ski out to the side of it. Wow, well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you got out of that one and that you've only been in one. That's great because, yeah, avalanches, for as much time as you spend in the backcountry, it's such a constant threat. So yeah, that's great news to hear. It's it's only that one and you got right out of it. And have you ever been hurt while skiing? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I have uh, I had an ACL tear, two ACL tears and two oh. boot top calf tears, one on each leg. Oh, well, hey, that's still not too bad. Was it each leg or the same leg for the ACL? One on each. Mm-hmm. One on, well, yeah, good. Even it out. 10 years apart. 10 years apart. Wow, god. A- ACL is a tough one, but uh if it goes clean, it could be okay. Yeah, um, it's fine. <laughs> good. And you've been on ski trips all over the world. What, what might have been your favorite ski trip or some of your favorite ski trips? Wow. Um, there's a bundle of them at the top. So, yeah, I'd say to say favorite, I'm going to switch it to my most formative ones. Mm. And for that, I would say the Altai in Siberia, Siberia in 1999 was my first international ski expedition. Uh-huh. And then Mount Everest was in 2006. Yeah. And my first time to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the Brooks Range of Alaska was 2010. So tell us a little bit about the the skiing in Siberia, because I just, I never even heard of that. I didn't know there was these big mountains. When I looked on the map, it looked like it was one block west of Mongolia and and, and way in the middle of nowhere. So just tell us a little bit about that trip, please. Yeah, it's Mount Beluka is the highest mountain in the Altai, and it's on the border of China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan. Out there, out there. It's out there. And we went in the spring, so imagine going to Siberia in March. Uh It was really cold. I bet. (laughs) Yeah. What was the access um, like? The access was crazy. It was, we flew uh, from Moscow to a city in Siberia called Barnaul on a domestic plane, which was interesting as it was. There were literally <laughs> like chickens in the in the 
closet of the airplane. Nice. Um, and then in Barnaul, we got in a old Russian Sikorsky helicopter retrofitted to run on like kerosene or something. The whole side of it was black and it was crazy. And then Whoa. we flew two hours deep into the mountains uh, and landed on the frozen Akam Lake, which is on the north side of Beluka. Camping was pretty easy there, except for the fact that it was minus 40 Whoa. because camping was in these Russian metal barrels. And uh, because they have a some degree of a meteorology meteorology station there. So we were able to use these barrels and at the base camp and, you know, we would ski and camp above that. However, camping above that was so cold that we didn't even bring tents. We dug snow caves. It sounds like an intense trip. And, and, and you may have met your husband on that trip as well. Sounds like it was a, yeah, a very much that's a formative right. trip. It was. And it was uh, my first ski expedition. And the year before I had been on my first international climbing expedition, which to Sikkim, India, which was amazing. And wow. it was on that trip that I realized that I wanted to do that kind of stuff with my skis. So it was really special. And it was also special because the North Face was one of the sponsors. And I was not yet on the team. It would take me five more years to get a spot on the team. But it was um, the trip where I kind of started to hatch all these dreams that that's what I wanted to do. So the Altai, Everest, and the Brooks Range, uh, your favorite places. Right. Is there anywhere you would not go back to? Probably the summit of Everest, unless my daughters wanted to go and then I'd go with them, but probably not to ski. Makes sense. Makes sense. Skiing uh, raises I, the ante quite a bit. I feel like we just, yeah, even before what happened with Hillary, I feel like we, you know, we barely got out of that one alive and I'm grateful for that. And that was enough. Well, I'm excited to dig into that in a little bit here. We're almost done with a rapid fire. Uh, where have you not skied yet, but you'd love to ski there? Norway and Bhutan. Wow, quick. Yeah, Bhutan looks intense. And Bhutan is in the Himalaya for, for our listeners. Uh, what might be your favorite ski movie of all time? <laughs> not a big ski movie watcher, but I got to say Warren Miller, Timeless from 2019, because my daughters Grace and Tia were in it, oh, along uh, with Rob and I. Oh, mm -hmm. very cool. The whole family. Okay, cool. I haven't seen yeah. that one yet, so I'll put that on the yeah. list. And I was I was only like 10 days out from a, this horrible calf injury. So I got I was able to go out for a couple hours and maybe have a few turns in it, but it wasn't what I wanted for for my uh ability to be in it, but it was really amazing to see my daughters who at that point were, you know, like 10 and 11 or something get get in the Warren Miller film. So it was super cool. And the other one I'd say would be Lotse, which tells Hillary and Jim's story of skiing the Lotse Kulwar in 2018. Like generally I prefer documentary ski movies over ski porn style, but I just love watching beautiful skiing. So like, I really enjoyed the, this year's edit for, from uh, TGR. And I especially loved the Teton segment. And then Christina Lusty and Sam Smoothie, um, that yeah. line that they skied in BC was beautiful. So, but yeah, in general, I have for the, for the top two, I'm going to say Lotse and Warren Miller 2019. And I actually just made, I thank you for, for all that. I just made a, 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 a movie date with my fiance to watch that movie on Tuesday night, the Lotse movie. Um, oh, cool. I, I, I watched it, but I knew I wasn't paying attention that well. I had some other things going on. So I really want to sit and just, divulge, you know, just really dive into that one, uh, considering that 
how special that accomplishment was and that Hillary's not here anymore. Um, so right. yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to watch that again. What challenges you the most intellectually on a daily basis? How do you want to define intellectually? You know, good, good question. I just, I just think kind of mentally, uh, you know, what, what, mm-hmm. what challenges you the most just in your mind and your mindset on a daily basis? Hmm. Well, it shifts depending on what I'm deep into at the moment. Like for the four years I was writing my book, that would have been my answer. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Now it's finishing this film that I'm working on. Uh, right before that, it was the expedition planning for the film as I led that. And what can you tell um, us about I'm the in- film? Uh, so it should be out in November and, uh, the North face supported it in large part in the largest way and also protect our winters, um, and a number of other organizations in the film. The Genesis really is not just my project to climb and ski the mountains up there because it's not really about climbing and skiing the mountains up there. It's about having a reason and an opportunity to go immerse myself in that deep landscape, But over the years of going there, I've just become aware of how incredibly fragile the place is, especially the coastal plain. And I'm a lot about justice. And it just, as much as I know that there is oil and gas under the ground on the coastal plain, I feel like as humans, we've got to be able to find another way. Because specifically, and there's so many reasons to enter into that conversation, but what I chose to do this spring was try to highlight the lack of snow cover on the coastal plain. At the moment, there's a mandate to open the the coastal plain to oil and gas drilling. And inside that mandate, the BLM is required to figure out what conditions it can be safely developed for oil and gas extraction activities. And they have set this minimum average of nine inches of snow on the coastal plain because we need to protect the tundra and the permafrost underneath it from the heavy equipment. So I went out there specifically this year to measure the snow depth on the coastal plain, because I don't believe having skied across it before with Hillary uh, the first time in 2010, that that snow depth exists. So I wanted to storytell ideally in a way that would bring in perhaps a different audience than has even engaged before. One that is excited about the adventure and the mountains and all that partnership and with the reality of what's on the ground. So yeah, that's what this film is about. It's it's two parts. It's the mountain adventure and then our ski all the way across the coastal plain to finish on the Beaufort Sea and take measurements. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And I'm 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 assuming this is just gonna crush it at the film festivals all across North America and more, hopefully. So uh, yeah. I'm excited. And are you able to share the name? Oh, we're still in a deciding. We're in a working title now, so it's better not to share. Okay, well, let's wait. We'll wait, and we'll we'll make sure we announce that uh, via our channels yeah. and Snowbrains for sure. Yeah. Well, so I mean, in addition to like you know expedition work like that, I would say that when I'm in prep mode for a speaking engagement, I'm oh. I'm deep into that intellectually, right? And mm-hmm. and I am actually also taking a course on coaching on life and wellness coaching which is an intellectual challenge as well as a scheduling challenge. (laughs) And my work with, as a board member, volunteer board member for Alaska Wilderness League is also an intellectual challenge. So then the overarching thread is to uh, the challenge of keeping on top of it all and trying to be good at it all. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks again for sharing all that. And yeah, I, I, I think it's so important to have these intellectual challenges, right? When we lose that stuff, I think life becomes less exciting, less spicy, less 
engaging in a lot of ways. So, um, so that's great. And I really love the life coaching stuff. I'd love to talk to you a whole other time about that. My fiance is really into that. We've been reading tons of books about, you know, attachment style and psychology of relationships and all this. And we've learned so much and it's made our relationship so much better. It's so easy because we have the nomenclature and the communication to avoid conflicts and we can kind of see them coming a mile away. And I do think it's really important to share that information because so many people could have healthier mental outlooks, essentially, uh, if they had that info, because a lot of it is kind of simple once you learn the I basics. Love um, I so, love that. So I and love you know, that it's you're a lot about, getting into that. Yeah, it's about that back to that authenticity piece and allowing yourself uh, to be vulnerable and continue to grow. What might be your favorite book or books? <laughs> this is a good question to follow the last one. Um, yeah. <laughs> this past week, it's been one called Roar Like a Goddess, which is oh. brand new and it's out by Acharya Shunya. Okay. It's for everyone, yeah, especially women who want to lead powerful, abundant, wise lives. For the long haul, The Alchemist Ooh. by Paolo Coelho, and mm -hmm. another older one called The Seventh Sun by Orson Scott Card. And it's like, I guess this theme between them about like life being hard and having challenges and having allowing yourself to access your own powerful magic. It's cool though. That that's the kind of stuff I like. That's cool. I could tell you like it by the big smile right now uh, and the head bobbing, but uh, alchemist is in my top five too. A lot of, it's really well-written. It's a very good book. It's short, highly recommended. And a lot of it is just the, what it did to me. It, it changed my life. I read it at a really pivotal time in my life. And uh, it literally, the part of the reason I'm on this path uh, that I'm on is, is because of that book, because it really encourages you to go for your dreams. So, um, so I appreciate I like you, that. Paulo. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, well, well thanks for appreciating that because uh, I love that we have that connection with that book. Uh, and I'm assuming it did something similar for you. Um, mm -hmm. who has inspired you the most in your life? My dad. And how so? Oh, he was a really good human. He passed about a year and a half ago. Oh, he, um, cared deeply. He taught me the love of the mountains really. And to go after what makes you happy without regard for what society thinks about it. And that's fantastic because you know a lot of parents don't push that direction. They push the, you know, fit in, do the society thing, uh, you know, go to college, get a job, all that. So. And he was torn, you know, his, um, that was required of him and it never made him happy. And so I know how hard it was for him to just like, let us all be ourselves and, because he was bridging that and frankly doing some ancestral healing and, and changing that. And it was really, really cool. Like I'd come back from doing something super exciting in the mountains and he's the first one I'd call and he'd be like, guess what? Nice. You know, I just solo climbed <laughs> and skied the grand and he'd go, of course you did. Tell me about it. You know, oh. he would always say, of course you did. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, I love that. Having that support is huge. And uh, so many folks that make it to these elite levels like you have, they do, you need that kind of support because um, it really, it's difficult to do these things without that sort of familiar or at least really strong friendship support. So, well, thank you. So I love that your dad, the most inspiring person. Well, thank you. You survived the rapid fire. So we're going to dig down a little bit into some some of your huge accomplishments. And, and we got to start with the seven summits. You're the very first person to ski 
the seven summits. And for our listeners, the seven summits are the highest peaks uh, on each continent, on all seven continents. So she was the first person to do that, which is insane. And I guess the first question is obvious is what gave you this incredible and pretty aggressive idea? Well, I didn't think of it so much as aggressive, but uh, it was definitely challenging. And for me, it goes to this theme that I always have in my life, which is I wonder. Mm. And I was competing on the free skiing world tour in uh, February, I guess it was. Yeah. Of 2005. And at Snowbird, Utah that year, the, uh, that, that stop on the free ride world tour was also the U S free skiing national championship. And I won that event and Dick Bass was there. He was the owner and creator of Snowbird uh-huh. and he gave out the award. So I kind of got to meet him, but what really happened was I was sick. I had this really nasty virus that had been coming on for a couple of days. So it was this Ooh. really deep personal challenge to show up and, you know, believe in myself and not pity myself for that physical situation and real believe that I could move beyond it. And it also meant that I didn't want to go out and celebrate that night. And so my husband, Rob and I went to dinner at the cliff lodge up at the airy, the sushi bar. And, uh, you know, just, it just happened that we were sitting next to Dick Bass and his son. And so we ended up pretty much sharing dinner with Dick Bass. And then late into the night, he shared stories about his dreams and he sure was a dreamer and about the seven summits. And anyway, I checked out of his hotel the next morning, there was a signed copy of his book waiting for me. So I read it over the next couple months. And when I read, I visualize things and I would thought, oh, wow, all those kind of sound skiable to me. And that's how I got the idea. <laughs> I love it. And for reference, uh, Dick Bass, uh, again, the owner of creator of Snowbird, also was the first person to climb all the seven summits, sort of invented the seven summits idea. Right. And uh, and he has a book uh, all about his experience that I forget what it's called. That's called Seven Summits. Oh, well, hey, and, clean and simple. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote it with uh, with help from Rick Ridgway, who was with him for a lot of them. And um, yeah, to be to be totally transparent, um, there was another person doing it at about the same time as Dick. And I also count him as a friend and his name is Pat Morrow. And I was he's Canadian, uh-huh. um, an amazing climber. And he was actually on that first trip with me in Sikkim, India in 1998. Oh, wow. And he and Dick were kind of. I think they were probably both doing it on their own at some point without realizing that the other one was doing it until it came down to close to the end. And then there was a battle for who could get to Antarctica and it's very difficult and expensive and Dick won that race. And then, so Pat was the first person to do the seven summits. If we count Karsten's pyramid as the, as the one in Australia and Dick was the first to do with, um, with Kosciuszko. So there you go. But yes, Dick was the first of the Dick Bass list. Very cool. And Kosciuszko, which I can never say right, is in Australia, is the highest peak in Australia. Right. Um, very cool. And how fast did you climb and ski all these peaks? In what time period? It was 17 months for the sixth of them, six wow. of them, which was after I got the idea. So okay. what happened was Denali was a first and kind of a one-off in the spring of 2004, because Rob and I had met in Siberia. So that's what we did when we had vacation, we would go 
climb and ski a mountain. Uh-huh. So we did Denali and it was a one-off. And then when I met Dick Bass and read his book, Denali had also been a one-off early on for him before he got the idea. So, uh, yeah, 17 months, uh, for the sixth of them, not including Denali, but including wow. Denali, it was a little over two years, two and a half years. Wow. That's very impressive. And was this kind of your full-time job or you're still juggling the no. rest of your life? No, I had, I was, did not have a job as a professional or sponsored athlete until the very last one, which was Everest. Whoa. My regular job was as a stonemason. I'd been a stonemason for 12 years. Wow. In the summer, um, at that time in my life, I was lit all sorts of things in the winter part-time so I could ski. But I mean, I, I worked in a flower shop arranging flowers. <laughs> I did odd jobs as necessary. You know, I would, yeah. I would Safe garden. to say you were a ski bum. Yeah. Hardworking ski bum. And my husband was working, um, his career was just taking off. And so I really put a lot of effort into supporting him because for us to have the freedom to do what we wanted to do, uh, that made the most sense. Very, and what was his occupation? Well, he really was a ski bum before that. Uh-huh. <laughs> He'd been in like over 20 Warren Miller ski films and whatever, and many other things I should say, not whatever, but he <laughs> graduated from the uh, Cornell Hotel School and had long wanted to get into be a hotelier in development. Oh, very cool. He's really gifted at working with teams and taking on big stressful projects that I would not touch. And so he was, uh, he built the Teton Mountain Lodge in Jackson, Wyoming for basically for a ski client of his. So yeah, he was getting going in, in that world of hotel development. Very impressive. And, and you were involved in that as well. Uh, and so you tell me, you didn't have a lot of support for, for this huge, impressive project. No. Um, wow. I didn't. I would the thing that was really special and you might like get this thread of, you know, some of those other like magical manifesting books that I've enjoyed. I actually met a really special human being whom I'll just say was an angel that appeared at the right time. And he financed my seven summits. He basically just wrote me a big fat check and said, spend it on skiing. And uh, I approached him with this idea about the seven summits when I finished that second year on the world tour. And he said, let's take it mountain by mountain. And so we did. And so it was like writing business plans for each different mountain. And every time I got back from one and it was successful, we, we worked on the next one. And um, so I had support in that way. And then that and then in 2006, uh, January 2006 was when I was first formally became contracted as a member of the North Face Global Athlete Team. So I could count North Face as a sponsor for the Everest trip. Wow. Well, I do, I do want to kind of put an exclamation point on that. that. This is how hard it is to get on the North Face team is that you basically have to be the very first person to do all ski, all seven summits. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I had already won, won oh, the world free skiing tour right, without twice. a sponsor. Oh my I gosh. did have a ski sponsor. Uh, Vocal gave me skis then. Wow. <laughs> And so again, to emphasize how difficult it is to get paid by companies uh, in the outdoor space, the competition is fierce. Uh, a lot of people say they're pro or or whatever, and, and really they're getting free gear. You know, it's so tough to get to that next echelon. Uh, and this really shows how hard it is to get on the North Face global team. Oh my gosh. So thank you for sharing that. Well, I'd love to hear stories about each of the seven summits you skied, if, if you're comfortable with that. And I want to start with Everest because it's just so glaring. It just seems 
impossible to me from the footage I've seen of how sharp that ridge is on the summit. So 29,032 foot Mount Everest, uh, it's in China and Nepal, is the highest peak on earth and the highest peak in Asia. So can you kind of walk us through the process of, of skiing down Everest? I think a lot of us understand that it's very difficult to get up there, uh, of course, but then coming back down as a whole is a totally different ball game and a mystery, I think. It's faster than walking. That's good. That's good. <laughs> but not that much. And that might answer some people's questions in their mind as they try to visualize it because we're not up there, you know, making fast GS turns down the mountain. Everything is really calculated. And sometimes it's literally a turn at a time. Right. When I was skiing the Lotse face down Everest, which is over 5,000 vertical feet uninterrupted, mostly over 50 degrees wow. without a single rest. I literally had a mantra come to me from somewhere, which was like your life depends upon it, turn. And I would make a turn. And then I had an, one ice axe in one hand and one ski pole in the other at that point. And I would move them, right? Switch, so that, switch hands. Yeah. So the ski pole would be in my downhill hand and the ice axe in my upper. And then I would repeat the mantra to myself and make another turn. Wow. So it was really intense. There were a lot of intense moments uh, right off the top. Well, the snow is really hard. Um, what happens at altitude is that wind is the greatest factor and mm -hmm. it changes the snow very intensely. So you get really hard wind ripples. You also get little slabs. You get places where rocks are sticking out. So it was really tricky, you know, it was like sidestep, sidestep, slip, slip, turn. And it was off angle too, getting off the summit back down onto the ridge. Ugh. So that was really awkward and yes, faster than skiing, but not much. And then when we got down to the Hillary step, we had dreams of skiing it, plans of skiing it. Yet Rob went down first because he wanted to film me skiing it and or I should even just say descending on skis because it's just a bunch of uh, tricky maneuvers. Like I said, stunt, especially there wouldn't be a bunch of ski turns, but he ran out of oxygen Whoa. and like passed out. Yeah. Wow. I wrote about it in my book and then I asked Rob to also write his story in the book because when you're at 8,000 meters, it's just whatever story you see, you don't get to really see. Right from a different perspective because the world's kind of got a small laser focus. Anyway, it was really, really tricky. And we down climbed a fair bit from the South summit, skied a little bit down the lower South face, down the triangular face, the, the balcony to camp four. Well, we skied off the summit. We spent a second unplanned night. We thought we'd ski off the summit and go all the way down the Lotse face to camp two, but we spent an unplanned night because of the situation that we were in up there with Rob and uh, helping him get back on his feet. Mm -hmm. So our timing was such that we didn't get back to camp until later in the afternoon. So then we got up in the morning and we, Rob and Jimmy and I skied down the Lotse face, which was a first ski descent and it's still unrepeated. Wow. And I guess we're 17 years out now. So it's the most exciting, challenging, dangerous thing that any of the three of us have ever skied. And wow. it was, um, without, we didn't even have a rope. Really? Wow. Yeah. And Rob had lost one of his crampons up above. 
Oh my god! Didn't even have crampons. Like there was no other way out but for us to ski down it, and it ended with jumping a Bergschrund at the bottom. Um, and that was after like hardly being able to talk about it that night, you know, with pretty much almost no food and water either. Cause we weren't planning on being up there. Yeah, it was intense. And it, so after that, then we skied on through a fair bit of, uh, the Western Coombe and into the icefall. Wow. And like we the had plans. Yeah. We had plans of a way around it. We thought, but the timing was off because it'd been off from earlier and the weather was shifting and we knew a storm was coming and we were really just skiing into the fog of a storm starting. And I skied right up to this huge crevasse and thought, and then just laid myself down and reached up with my arms crossed overhead to Rob and Jimmy behind me, just screaming at them to stop. I thought that the, the edge of the crevasse was going to collapse at any moment. And at least I could save them. And then from that point, I just shimmied my way back up, kind of crawled my way back up the hill. And we went over to the more traditional like climbing route and Rob and Jimmy were successful. We skied a few ladders, like a couple of um, (laughs) fins through crevasses. And then I just decided that was enough that we were trying to make something (laughs) happen that wasn't meant to happen because the route that we wanted to ski would have been far over to the side away from the crevasses. Uh, But anyway, so we skied way well over half the mountain and we skied from the summit, but that is the one that is not a complete ski descent of my seven summits. And so it was the one that I had a, I had an asterisk next to for a long time. And in some ways I still do for sure. But it was one that kept me from wanting to tell my story for a long time because I just don't want to hear the naysayers out there. Um, But the reality is I I don't want any hate mail. I've had enough of that. So please don't send me any more. The reason I tell the story is really like it matters a lot to people to just see something like that. That's not only like incredibly difficult and challenging and full of impermanence, frankly, but also where we had to make decisions along the way that were not about any of our own egos. It was about preserving and protecting the life of ourselves and our teammates, making the right decisions along the way. So, Well, you said intense earlier about a piece of the experience and from what I'm hearing, intense doesn't begin to cover it. Uh, (laughs) I, I don't know if there's another word. Um, it was like frightening and spiritual. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe it's to be simpler to say is like going on a hunt into the dragon's cave and knowing that getting out alive will be a mix of awareness, decision making skill and pure luck. Unbelievable. And, and why do you think I've heard some, you know, some some talk of this. Why do you think the Lotse face uh, descent has not been repeated? It's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And how so? I am not kidding. There is not a single spot on it except for this one rock about two thirds the way down that if you've watched the man who skied Everest and uh, Yuchiro Mira tumbled over that rock when he was skiing the Lotse face in 1972, I think it was. Um, So it's other than his, it's never had a ski descent. The climbing route is called the South pillar route, I think. Yeah. Uh And um, it's really, really steep and it does not have a single rest. Not wow. not one for over five thousand vertical feet, and Jeez. it it starts at around thirty five or forty degrees for a few turns, but it quickly gets into fifty fifty plus, and then it maintains that the whole way down, and then you have to 
literally jump a Bergstrand at the bottom. And even though Rob was wow. in a bit of an altered mental state from what happened the day before, he's got incredible air awareness and he's very gifted. So he went first and I was petrified, but I just knew I didn't want to go last. So I went second <laughs> and then Jimmy went last. And Jimmy Chin is the Jimmy, right? Uh, everybody knows yes. Jimmy Chin's a big deal. Uh, and yes. how big, how big was the jump? I don't know. It was pretty big. It was at least like a 10, 15 foot gaper. Jeez. With, um, but that's the smallest it was anywhere oh on the my face. Gosh. And that had, uh, it had just a really nice angle to it. So, you know, it wasn't flat and it wasn't too steep. But imagine for our listeners doing that after climbing Everest, uh, kind of being out of and food then and skiing the Lotte face, skiing the yeah. five thousand vertical foot, fifty degree face. Which you know, I've I've rarely skied fifty degrees in my life, and, and if it's for more than seven hundred vertical feet, I'm exhausted mentally at the bottom. Uh, for me, at least, the mental focus it takes to ski, you know, what I call yeah. that that's extremely steep for me. Uh, this it, it went from twenty six thousand feet down to twenty one. Unbelievable. Then you got a Hucka 15 foot Bergstrand at the bottom. I can't, oh, and with a pack and you're exhausted. And oh, yeah, you guys didn't didn't have a rope to, you know, look into other options for getting around that Bergstrand. All in, all in uh, is how it feels. That's that's why it hasn't been skied since. (laughs) Now, the Lotse face has gotten skied, um, and I skied a portion of it also along the climbing route. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's the side that Hillary and Jim descended. And, you know, that's also got a lot of consequence for sure, but it's, it's different. Like when I say this is, you know, 5,000 vertical feet, this is also about 5,000 horizontal feet, like a solid mile on the other side of the Lotse face. This is the line that goes direct down from camp four. Unbelievable. And, and, and because I, I think I talked to Davenport about skiing on the climber's side, uh, right. like you talked about where they went to. And I think they only skied part way because it just got so firm and wind yeah. blows the snow away. And I think that's part of it is there's the snow also is, is let's just yeah. say terrible, uh, really firm. Well, and, I should have said more about forgiving. that. Yeah. What was the it snow's like? Really, really firm. Yeah. Um, and there's um, a lot of places where it's just shimmering blue ice. So the way that I saw the snow was in these shapes of these patterns that were like, like these tongue shapes of snow. And even then it's incredibly firm and it's got like ball bearings, um, sometimes the size of golf balls of, of ice on them, but you couldn't go to the end of one of the tongues because then you would have a greater expanse of blue ice to cross to get to the next one. Gross. Yeah. I mean, kind of sounds, sounds just extremely challenging. Uh, what gave you folks the confidence to go for the Lotzi face? <laughs> well, I don't know. We just had it. We had it in each other and we had it in ourselves. And that was the feeling that I really had step, sleep, skiing over the top was just this total confidence. Like you, you've heard me say already, I do like to rock climb, but this was like climbing 513X and which I would never do. Um, but that was my version of skiing it. So it was like this just total commitment and yeah, in ourselves and in each other. And it was like a, just a deep connection. We were in it and it, it was a beautiful experience. Yeah. Skiing Everest, like there can be these asterisks and that's fine. Uh, and there's no asterisk next to skiing the let's say face direct from camp four. Very impressive. I don't see any asterisks from my side, that's for sure. Uh, one of the first people to ever ski Everest uh, and the very first woman to ever ski Everest. And it was the final piece of your seven summits. So congratulations. I I still can't Thanks. believe it. Uh, I remember when it happened and I was, 
there wasn't enough footage or detail for me to ever be satisfied. And so to hearing it from you now, I feel much more uh, satisfied, if you will. Uh, so because that that is one hell of a story. It was also the post monsoon season. So there was nobody else on the mountain. And that made it really special. So, you wow. know, if you want to, if you want to ask if it's like, you know, easier or harder than another time of year, or I don't have any other thing to relate it to. That was our experience on Everest. It was a wilderness experience. And you were the only ones there, which is not the case yeah. almost at any time anymore. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area, home to one of the first ski areas to open in the United States and the birthplace of avalanche forecasting and avalanche mitigation in North America. The skiing techniques, lifts, and lodges, and ski gear have changed with the times, but there's a timeless spirit at Alta that remains. Perhaps it's because the generation of skiers who have been able to pass on their love for the mountain. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Gunnison Crested Butte. Searching for a university? Love to ski? Check out the mountain sports program at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, Colorado. The Western Colorado University Mountain Sports Program allows you to compete in skiing, snowboarding, or other outdoor sports while getting a degree in a tight-knit, hands-on learning environment. Learn more at western.edu. Well, let's flip to almost an opposite of that. Uh, one of the other seven summits is Kilimanjaro, uh, 19,341-foot Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, which is the highest peak in Africa. Uh, and from all the photos I've seen of it, there's not a lot of snow uh, or ice. And so I'm very curious, what was your experience uh, skiing Kilimanjaro? Was there snow? Uh, yeah, tell us all about it. Well, the glaciers, as we all know, don't go anywhere near the summit anymore. They're probably like a half mile melted away from the summit these days. Uh -huh. Certainly about a quarter mile when I was there, which means you need to go when there's seasonal precipitation in the form of rain everywhere else on the mountain and snow up high. So this was the only mountain of my seven summits that I did twice. Um, oh, wow. The first time I went, there was no snow on the summit. And so this, I went back, did some more research about when the absolute rainiest time of year would be uh -huh. and went back for that. And it actually meant that it was quite skiable. I probably skied about 3,000 vertical feet. It was really, really quite good, too. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's phenomenal. And what time of year is that? Well, in that year, that was May. Okay. And when did you go the first time? June. Okay, so you had to wait a whole year to come back. Wow. Yes. Very cool. Dedicated. Cool. And, and anything else from that trip? Uh, Kilimanjaro looks very special. So Kilimanjaro was really special in a lot of ways. Um, it was uh, logistical and moral dilemma for me because Ooh, it, Kilimanjaro National Park, uh, Kanapa, doesn't allow any pleasure-seeking devices on the mountain, or at least they didn't then. I'm sorry, I haven't followed recently to know if that's changed. But that means no base jumping, no paragliding, no skiing. You can look up in the regulations and see what they decide to call. I was hesitant devices. to ask you about this because I have a yeah. friend that went and it was illegal and all this. So yeah, continue. This is great. Yeah. So um, I sought permission the first time and it was denied. And then I sought permission again the second time and mm -hmm. it was denied. Mm -hmm. And the second time I was aware that I was still going to find a way to do it, even if they denied it. Right. I believed, and I still do, that, and I honor that a piece of 
their decision to deny it is because the people who live there and run that park don't have a lot of experience with winter conditions and snow. Mm-hmm. And so they would be responsible in their eyes, no matter what waivers we signed um, for any kind of rescue. Uh-huh. Um, or they believe they would be. And they would just be well out of their comfort zone. And uh, yeah, I think that that's it. And so I was able to find a group of people who was willing to help me. I do share some of the stories of that in my book, Higher Love, Climbing Skiing the Seven Summits, if people want more detail. But it turned into a, a lesson of trust um, in that I had to drop my skis off in town below the mountain before oh, wow. we started. And I wouldn't see him again until the summit. Oh, somebody had to sneak them up there. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Are you able to share a little bit to, about how that I happened? I had to ski at a time when there was nobody else up there. Oh, so it wow. turns out there were people who were on my team. I didn't even, I wasn't even really allowed to know who exactly was on my team. Wow. But there were people on my team that were stationed at different points around the rim of the crater at the summit. Uh, with radio comms to make sure that there was nobody else around wow. uh, when I skied. Wow. And then I had to take my skis off just before reaching our highest camp. And then our and then the weather, we were so tired of walking in the rain for a week, which we'd done on the way up, <laughs> working our way around the mountain and enjoying it and acclimatizing. And, um, and then we were so over it that we walked 10,000 vertical feet down the rest of the day in one day. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there before when you're just so done with being in the mountains, like let's, whatever it takes, let's just, we're not even going to sleep. Yeah. We told uh, our Porter team, we were like, look, we'll pay you the three days that we are contracted to pay you and let's go do it. <laughs> let's get the hell out of here. Wow. Very. And, and I know that you will, we'll, we could dig this up in the book too, but how did you sneak? How did they sneak the skis up there? Cause there's not, um, there's not donkeys or anything like something big that you could hide it with. It must have just no. A really wonderful human carried them, and I never knew it. They okay. were wrapped in some other kitchen gear. Ah, makes sense. Okay, so they hid it in the camp gear. Um, makes mm-hmm. sense. Very impressive. Great story. Well, from a you know a traditionally trekking peak to one that's very much the opposite. I'd love to talk next about Mount Vincent in Antarctica. So sixteen thousand and fifty foot Mount Vincent, Antarctica, highest peak in Antarctica. And uh, I guess the first question that anybody would ask is, how cold did it get on this trip? It got cold enough that my pee bottle froze solid, even inside an insulator. Wow. Um, And then imagine that, right? Carrying around a frozen pee bottle. Then what do you do with that? That's That's frustrating. That's insult. Yeah. That's Um, And then uh, we got stuck at the high camp for three days in a storm. We were the only ones up there. And um, Well, how high is that camp? that camp was um, 13,000 feet. And so we had no way of measuring the temperatures when we were up there, but we were told later that that storm, uh, 7,000 feet below at the base camp, at the Mm -hmm. 6,000 foot base camp, they measured the temperatures at minus 35 and the winds at 70 miles an hour. Wow. So, so for our listeners, minus 40 Celsius and minus 40 Fahrenheit is the same. So, uh, so no matter where Uh, you're from, this is cold. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly <laughs> cold. It was, and it, it was so miserable that we, Rob and I in our tent, we basically took turns taking care of each other for 24 hours at a time where the other person didn't have to leave their sleeping bag really? because it was really about, oh my God. it was conserving energy. So one person would get up in the morning and start the stove and 
empty the pee bottles and make water and the other person would just kind of lay there. And then the next day, the other person would do it all. (laughs) And we tried to climb on day three when, but it turns out it was an eye of the storm. And then we came back. I mean, we had to get out occasionally to shovel the snow out from around uh, the block walls that we had made around the tent, the snow block walls. Um, But yeah, so we tried to climb on day three and it was too cold and windy and stormy. So then we came back and we had day four to rest. And then on day five from high camp, we went to the summit. And at that point, the storm has was just breaking. So, um, you know, we could actually unzip our our uh, 8000 meter hem suits for the first time down, you know, like a like a quarter zip tee. We could unzip them a little bit. But we lived in those suits for two weeks. Wow. Because I think when people hear about going to Mount Benson, they don't we don't understand the details uh for it to be so cold that one person doesn't leave their sleeping bag for 24 hours uh, and the other person takes care of everything that that helps i think paint the picture uh because i think what we're all looking for is the visualization right and that's something that you can really easily visualize uh that is bitter cold when you don't want to get out of bed uh, because it's it's just not there's no rest once you're in that cold uh it just wears you out so much i mean even i think most people have experienced a day out in the cold and no even if you're not working that hard when you come home you just i at least for me i'm just exhausted uh because my body's been fighting the cold all day even surfing cold water can do that to me just two hours you know so to imagine being out there for days on end and, and you know minus 40 degree temperatures that is uh, uh, impressive so it sounds like it was about five days at the top and then i assume from there you were able to like, zip out of there uh right. what you've already kind of mentioned some unique things what else was unique about skiing vincent <laughs> um let's see the view is unique about skiing vincent because when oh. you're looking out at antarctica below you, it literally just looks like a sea of white. It almost looks like it's just clouds, but it's this expanse of the continent beneath you. That's, you know, relatively flat, except for these mountains that you're in. So that's a a little bit of like a, a mind trick. (laughs) It's like you're, it's like a hallucination, but it's real. And, um, and what else was unique? Um, well, we skied a really beautiful line. Um, what else is unique? It was uh, really, really firm because I, I just touched on wind, right? And yeah. and it's a desert there. So yeah. it is technically a desert. Because even your storm. It's got less precip than Sahara. Yeah, yeah. And even your storm, it's the highest, driest, coldest, windiest continent, right? Um, and so I think even your storm was probably just mostly wind, right? Yes, it was yeah. wind and cold mostly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, tell us a little and bit so, about the skiing. Um, it was really firm. So firm that like <laughs> you're leaving your, your crampons wouldn't even leave a mark no. on the way up. Mm-hmm. Oh. Gosh. Yeah. So, so when you, even when you're walking on your crampons, they're not really sinking in. You're just, just no. the tippy points of them. So they need to be sharp for this trip. Yeah. And that just kind of gives you pause when you're skiing back down the same line that we climbed mm-hmm. and, you know, we're trying to kind of follow our line and it's like, it's a, it's eye opening when you can barely see an occasional crampon print. Um, and yeah, and skiing with a him suit with a 8,000 meter down suit. That was my first time. That was really interesting. Yeah. What's different about um, that? Just cumbersome. Yeah, it's come. Well, it gets really (laughs) comfortable after about a week or so. Um, and you don't notice it, but it, it is different. You're kind of like the Michelin man in a way, right? You're just like pillows wrapped around every part of your body. (laughs) 
which would be odd to ski in. Yeah, odd to ski in. And then there were some steep sections and then some flatter sections and some steep sections. And then and then below that high camp, there's back down this area that people call the head wall that's right under some big seracs and has some crevasses in it mm. and uh, is also really steep. And I think another unique thing about being in a place like Antarctica is those temperatures really mean, kind of like my first trip to Siberia, where you don't want to be more than three hours or so from a camp because it's so cold. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's um, just a level of like pressure and anxiety about being out. Scary. Yeah. Scary. Um, And I can't imagine being out in those kind of temperatures. That that is next level. Uh, There's no doubt. Well, let's flip to Denali. Maybe we got softer snow in Alaska. So uh, 20,320 foot Denali in Alaska is the highest peak in North America. Uh, I think it's some other interesting details here. Supposedly the third most prominent and third most isolated peak on Earth after Everest and Aconcagua. Uh, and some say this can be the most difficult of the seven summit for the lack of porters, but I, I personally don't believe that. Uh, what, do you, what do you think on that? Uh, you know, I can't really speak to the lack of porters because it's pretty rare that I've used porters anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It's. I think the thing about Denali is that it just depends on what you get for weather and conditions right. and what time of year. And you can make any peak a different experience when those, when any one of those th- three change. So when Rob and I went to Denali, we literally went like on vacation in the month of May in 2004. And we went because that was a good time for him to take off of work. Uh-huh. And, and again, the, go you went sk- before this project had begun. This was just, uh, you, this guys is just vacation. Went, you guys just went skiing. Yeah, this uh-huh. is, <laughs> this was vacation for sure. Uh-huh. And um, so that just means that The timing was set for us because of our calendar, but for anybody who wants to ski Denali, June would be better timing because what happens at these northerly latitudes is it's too cold to precipitate until a certain time of year. So -hmm. that's what we, we went on to the mountain on May 1st, I think, or 3rd or something like that. That's very early. Yeah. So we were opening the mountain. So difficult. Yeah, we had difficult because we had to make every camp up along the way. So- Mm. You know, the images and the stories I've heard of other people as they get dropped up on the Cahiltna Glacier and they start to walk or ski their way up the mountain, there are like camping zones that with already with the snow walls built and everything that have been, you know, abandoned a couple times by different parties moving ahead the mountain on them. For us, that wasn't the case. We had to build every camp as we went. Wow. And that made it hard. And then we also had really, really tough weather. By the time we got to the 14 camp, there was a series of storms stacked up that the climbing rangers said stretched 800 miles to the west. Whoa. To which my next question was, how long does it take for 800 (laughs) miles of storms to pass? Um, So the wind was just honking up high. You could just see it, these big lenticulars over the top. and, And it was just really dangerous. We tried to push high. We did. We went up to 17 um, just getting knocked down by wind, trying to go any higher. And so we retreated and, um, and then we went back up and we were actually in position to help for a rescue. Cause we tried again and, uh, and the wind was so bad and the cold, cold was so bad. And I actually had some cold damage to my toes. 
Oh. We went back to the 17 camp and then there were some Koreans that needed a rescue who pushed to the summit in that weather. So basically oh. almost nobody summited before us. It was, it was a couple weeks of people trying and for the most part leaving. And so then after that, so we stayed and helped with that rescue for a bit. And then we went back down to camp 14 camp, which by then had now looked like a small village. Right. And we rested for a day, and then it seemed like there was a little bit of a blip in the weather. Nothing that we could really count on, but our time had run out. We'd been on the mountain for 21 days, I think. So we um, just went for it in a single push from the 14,000-foot camp to the summit. Wow. Because we were, we were fit enough, and we were acclimatized well enough to 17. And that was an amazing experience. Yeah. So we went to the top. I think it took us 10 hours to the top from the 14 camp. And then Whoa, that's fast. Skied back down. Wow. And, and which route did you ski and how was the skiing? Well, you know, we had dreams of skiing things like the Messner, the Orient Express, mm-hmm. but that just didn't happen with that weather. So we skied back down uh, the West Buttress. And then when we got to the 17 camp, we dropped down into the rescue gully and skied that which was oh, really exciting. It was really steep. And the first place I ever got an ice axe out in one hand. So it was you firm know. in that, in that part. It was really firm. Yeah. yeah. Again, back to that wind had been so intense. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very that <laughs> intense again, doesn't cover these trips. I love it. Uh, I, I was lucky to guide uh, Mount McKinley one, or excuse me, Denali one time. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it, we were in 14 camp for 10 days and mm-hmm. it was just the wind. And I remember on my 30th birthday, we were going to make it to 17 camp. We went up the fixed lines to, you know, from 14 camp to 16,000 feet, something. And I was so excited and we got there and the wind is just howling. And I remember looking at, you know, the other guides on my teams, like we're going back down, aren't we? So, yep. Damn it. You know, for my birthday, I really just needed some movement. We've been in camp for so long. Uh, but again, for for you know what she's speaking of, uh, I can attest to the wind up there is nuts. And the people who tried to climb in that 10-day window got damaged. Uh, you know, one guy I think lost seven fingers, frostbite. I've never seen that the triangle of uh black frostbite people get basically between their face coverings and their goggles. Uh, I'd never seen anything quite like that. So uh the mm-hmm. wind is is otherworldly when you get to these higher elevations and that's as high as I've been ever. So I can't imagine, you know, what Kit's doing going up another, I don't even know, yeah. 9,000 feet from there. It's just, it, it's, it's, can't, I can't imagine what the wind is like on these trips, but yeah, the wind. It blows you over. It can actually blow you over. I had that happen one oh, time. Yes. Yeah, right? I was actually, my feet were still kind of moving, but I was on my side. It happened so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so intense. So, and then, uh, from 14 camp down, did you get any good skiing there or same thing? Just firm and windy. <laughs> uh, no, it was okay <laughs> from there, but, um, yeah, we, we wanted out and, um, I used to be a ski patroller at, at Telluride. So mm-hmm. I said to Rob, well, well, we went around camp and we tried to give away all of our extra stuff which we had we didn't have anything standard operating procedure at 14 camp (laughs) to be fair we had taken on other people's extra because we decided to stay longer and give it another try so we were getting rid of extra candy yeah (laughs) uh anyway so we pared down and we fit it all in one sled and we tied the other sled on top of the of one so we had Ah. like a burrito Nice. And uh, I skied it down like ski patrol style and he tail roped it. And we actually had a pretty darn good time skiing down. Wow. It was some tricky teamwork, but it worked great. That's great. And uh, you guys probably got out quite quick being on skis and moving fast. We did. And then we got stuck for another two days at base camp waiting to get out because at the airstrip storm. 
Yeah, because oh. the, yeah, at the airstrip because so many people were stacked up. And so then there was then the, the plane finally came in. There'd been some heavy wet snow, and uh, we'd all out there, you know, stomping down the landing zone from the heavy wet down there. And our plane came to pick us up, and he said it was so tricky to land, and he because of those <laughs> conditions, the heavy wet snow. And he's like, "Look, I can take one of you in your pack, or I can take two of you in no packs." We're like, you just take us. We'll leave the packs. You can bring them. As soon <laughs> as you can. <laughs> We're out. Oh, I would. But be uh, that trip board. was twenty-five days on the mountain. Ooh, wow! That and that's long because you know a, a quick trip. I think is fourteen days guided trip at least. Um, getting getting in, getting acclimatized to the summit and out. Um, and then yeah, I think my trip was 21 days. So to, and yeah. mine felt like and the, when you talked about Tanzania, when you were just over it, uh, sick of walking around in the rain, and you descended 10,000 feet in a day, pretty much what what my crew did. We went from 17 camp because we were so everybody was so sick of it, down to 14, reorganized our stuff, and went from there all the way to the airstrip. We took one like two hour nap somewhere on the Cahilton Glacier on the way out. Uh, but you know, we tra- we switched, so we traveled that night, you know, quote unquote night, even though it doesn't really get dark, but at cooler temps for the glacier. And when we get to the airstrip, we're so done. And they same thing. Oh, we can't fly right now. So we literally put up our tents, got in them, and we got the radio call. We can fly. I never seen my you know, our clients and the team. Nobody ever worked that quickly before. But that was like, man, people, you could see the efficiency and the, you know, with real motivation. People got those tents packed, they got their bags packed, the food, everything was so quick, so perfect. And boom, got on those planes and got out. So that I can imagine that must have been challenging for you two days in the airstrip, which is not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to hear you tell that story because I just think about Hillary so much right now. And Hillary was the rare person who had that kind of drive on summit day, but most people would have it only when it's time to go home. I've heard that about Hillary, that she was very kind and, and, you know, very open-minded except for maybe not except for, but different on summit day. Summit day was, we're going to focus. We're doing this. It's game time. Love it. Well, uh, let's jump to Aconcagua. So Aconcagua, uh, I've seen this thing from the air and from even just driving over the Andes. Uh, it's ominous. Uh, 22,837 feet is Aconcagua in Argentina as the highest peak in South America. And it's the highest mountain on Earth uh, outside the Himalaya. So, And it's it's located in the longest mountain range on Earth, the 5,500, a lot of people just say 6,000 mile long Andes Mountains. Uh, so yeah, well, and, but it doesn't snow a ton there. It's super high. It's got to be so windy. Uh, I've only heard one ski tail uh, in my time of, of good snow on that mountain. Uh, and I think they got quite lucky because they even said later after the wind blew, you could see their negative prints, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the whole season. Uh, so yeah, what was it like? What was Aconcagua like skiing for you? It's hard. And a part of it is what you just said. Like it's, um, it's dry. And I think it's something about the dryness there and maybe also the proximity to the equator that that altitude feels higher than it would at a northern, more northerly or probably more southerly latitude too. So it's a tough one to acclimate to. The headaches were very real. Uh, I remember playing with a pulse oximeter a lot and, you know, my O2 sets would be lower than I would have thought they would be. And it was just, it was tricky. That mountain was also tricky for me because Rob didn't go. He it was right on the way home from Antarctica. And uh, he was oh, like, wow. I'm out. I'm going back to work. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> now I think he wishes he had gone and he, he may go back. But anyway, um, so I teamed up with um, a then member of the North Face athlete team, Damien Benegas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was kind of like 
along with his brother, Willie, one of the mayors of Aconcagua, if you will. Right. And they're local um, Ar- Argentines, correct? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Argentinian father, American mother, I believe. Oh, so, very cool. yeah, they're a beautiful blend. And, and uh, so they speak, you know, the, all the local dialect really easily and, and speak English really easily. And what that may, meant happen for us or contributed mm-hmm. to happening for us is we climbing the mountain with Damien, you know, you're off, like might jump over to the ranger tent and say hi and, you know, drink some mate, you know, <laughs> some mate tea and get more jazzed up and then keep going. And it was just this really like social thing. And, and, and Damien's really fast. So it was fast pace up and in between these camps. And then when we got to um, one higher camp, Damien went over and borrowed some, or, or, I don't know, was gifted some fuel, some extra fuel, right. To keep our loads lighter from these, uh-huh. from these Rangers or rescue Rangers or whatever. And, and it was like in the U S we would never think to do this. Right. But this was literally like white, white gas stored mm-hmm. in um, non BPA free type <laughs> of single use plastic water bottle. Oh, so wow. literally had like cloudy floaties in it. And Whoa. as we went higher on the mountain, we were using that fuel and we had problems with the stove and, oh. um, yeah. And Damien got sick and no. who knows, it could have been, it could have been food. It could have been altitude. There's, um, a big piece of me that will always believe from my medical training that it was carbon monoxide poisoning from our impurely functioning from your, stoves. From your janky um, fuel. <laughs> yeah. And so we went higher on the mountain together on our intended summit day. And, and the wind is just severe up there. Oh. Forecasts were really scary, but we were climbing this and we were climbing the Polish glacier. So I wasn't going for like the normal route because there really isn't snow over there. And I was going for the Polish glacier. So we were climbing the Polish glacier and, and there was new snow. It was the biggest snow year in 20 years. So we were working wow. hard, you know, post holing knee deep in places um, and then right in then other places, hitting the wind skim and not going in. So just a lot of work. Um, and then Damon just wasn't feeling well. So we got to a, a high point at probably about 20,000 or maybe a little bit more. And uh, Damon's pace was just not going to, we weren't going to make it for whatever reason he was sick. So we pulled over on the side and had that conversation. And and then uh, I think he might've suggested it, but I jumped right on it. He was like, you know, you should just leave your skis here. Oh, come back. And because it's so much work to get them all the way up there. Because they're heavy. Yeah, just every little thing, you know, every little thing counts. So I left my skis up there. Maybe my harness, too. I don't remember. A couple of other things made a careful little cache underneath some rocks on the edge of the glacier. And then we went down and then we went down to that camp to see if he could feel better. And he felt worse. So then we went all the way back down to base camp. And then it was a good three or four days of him getting better before we went back up. Um, wow. And so when we went back up, we summited on Christmas Day. Oh, that's pretty special. Skied right from the summit on Christmas Day. And it was a bit of everything. Uh, the top getting into the Polish glacier was the most dangerous wind slab I think I've probably ever been in. Whoa. Um, I really didn't think it was going to stay adhered. What was going on was that there was this new snow and then there is such persistent dry uh, climate that there is no bonding in there. So that was the first place I ever took a belay on skis. Wow. And um, Damien wasn't skiing. So, 
So he um, oh, just sat himself down in the snow and gave me a belay. And I, you know, made, I don't know, a good 12, 15 jump turns down into this constriction. And then we set up, uh, then there was this cliff band that would have been like, a finals competition run at one of the free skiing events to ski through with really high consequence and the snow underneath it, besides being really steep where you would exit onto the glacier, it, um, from climbing up it and from having to put protection in on our climb up, we knew that it was like two to three feet of snow on top of blue ice of Mm. new heavy snow on top of blue ice. So anyway, I, we set up a rope and, um, I wrapped with my skis on about a 30 foot section through there. Nice. And and then then let go of the rope and then kept skiing and then skied all the way down um to the end of the snow. Wow. So yeah, that was a very a very interesting one. It took a lot of persistence and um it was scary when Damien got sick. And again, it's a plug for people to be responsible and have some degree of medical training so you can figure out what's going on and when it's time to exit stage left. Wow. That's impressive. And, so, and, and having that fear of, of a slab avalanche too is, is just wearing, uh, really can wear you out. But I am curious just for our listeners, uh, how steep is it? Is it a, is it a challenging descent as oh, far yeah. as steepness goes? So right down the ridge off the summit is just nice. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't challenging. So I don't know how to put a number on that, uh-huh. you know, 30 degrees, whatever, right. undulates 35. But then dropping down into the couloir was really steep. And it was more than 50 degrees in places, but I'd say on average, it was 40, 45. After the cool water, down the face, down the Polish glacier face, then I was not in wind slab. Then I was in heavy wet. And it was like so much work to pick up my skis for every single turn. It was actually like almost kind of like bouncing my body enough to release for a turn. Um, And it was, yeah, steep and, and heavy wet and 40, 45 degrees. Wow. For the most part, you know, a couple of places a little steeper. And how did that work with, with uh, Damien walking and you skiing? Were you were you skiing slow enough that it was fine? Damien's like a mutant out there. Okay. He's like <laughs> he runs around the mountain so fast, and and actually, like you kind of know when you've hit forty degrees or forty five degrees in steepness because Damien doesn't need to turn around and face in at anything less than that. <laughs> Whoa, that's heavy <laughs> to down climb, and so he would just like run ahead. So, you know, I'm sure his effort was more than mine in skiing, but he would run ahead. And then with his awesome accent, you know, he'd get in position to run the video camera and he'd go, okay, Keith, ski. (laughs) I I just got back from my 12th full season in in Bariloche, Argentina. And I I love the Spanish they speak is so unique, uh, their accent and then their English accent too. Uh, That's exactly how they say it, Keith. Well, let's jump to uh, from some really intense skiing in, in on Aconcagua to something a little bit more mellow. I'm uh, anticipating uh, Mount Kosciuszko, which I may or may not be saying that right, is uh, seven thousand three hundred feet. It's in New South Wales, Australia, and it's the highest peak in Australia. Some people talk about there being different high points in that. Maybe you could say the continent of Oceania, I think is how they say it. Um, so there's a 16,000 foot peak in Indonesia. There's another one that's 15,000 feet in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it kind of depends on how people classify them, whether Asia or Oceania. But you went for uh, the one in Australia, Kosciuszko. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so tell us, what was this experience like? Because obviously this is mellow. It's only 7,000 feet. But but I'm still curious, you know, what was that experience like for you? Well, first of all, that, that debate is real. Um, and I'll leave it 
for those who care, but I'll say a couple things about it. Uh-huh. I was doing Dick Bass's list, which was Kosciuszko. Okay. Um, and you heard me say Pat Morrow was, had done Carson's Pyramid, Maneri and Jaya. Uh, at that moment, um, the, the other He one, climbed, not skied, correct, Pat? Pat and yeah. Dick climbed, didn't okay, ski. Yeah, right? climbed. Okay. And so in my research there, there really isn't skiable snow on Karsten's Pyramid. Right. And uh, it's, it's actually like death-defying situation to travel there through um, the native tribes. And I grew up with the geography lesson about continents being defined as the world's continuous expanses of land. And so if we... You know, once you start to get into continental plates and geology, then maybe you get a different story. But uh, I was going for the Dick Bass's list and going for the skiable ones. And and frankly, it's also kind of fun and silly uh, to have one that is not that big of a deal. And I think it's actually kind of a metaphor for life. I like it. And And so what was it like for you skiing there? Um, well, I flew over with, uh, I took a week off from a big stone masonry project that I was doing. Um, and I was also racing my road bike in endurance, uh, annual endurance bike race, 206 Whoa. miles every year, every September called, um, that goes from Logan, Utah to Jackson. Oh yeah. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. Latoja uh-huh. or Lotuja. And, uh, yeah, I don't do it. I haven't done it in a number of years, but I was doing it consecutively for years. And so anyway, I took this little break in September to go over there. So I went over there solo also because I wasn't telling anybody about my seven summit ski project. And, um, it's hard to rally somebody to go over to Australia to go climb ski Kosciuszko, but there were only like two people in the three people in the world that knew what I was doing anyway, not even my mom. Oh, or dad. So, um, yeah, I just flew over there solo, landed in Sydney, rented a car, had to figure out how to drive a car with this driver's side on the other on the, side, on of the road. wrong side of the road. Yep. <laughs> and then drove up into the snowy mountains to the ski town of Threadbow and stayed at the bottom of that. And then went up Kosciuszko. I actually had like the worst head cold I've ever had. I was so sick. <laughs> And um, like stopped at pharmacies and bought every decongestant I could find on the way up there. My ears were plugging. And um, and so, yeah. And so because I was really sick and because it was springtime and I would have had to walk like in the dirt alongside the ski lifts up Threadbow to get up to Kosciuszko, which I don't mind doing. Normally in the spring, I love that stuff, but I didn't feel well. I took the chairlift um, up Threadbow and then started ski touring, skinning from there. And it was pretty hilarious because it was kind of like, oh, I think it's over there, you know, and it's just this mound up high. It's not like a big peak or anything. And then there's a cairn on top and there are a number of people that like to go do it, especially just like local adventurers. And I remember, you know, I just told you that there were no other people hardly in the world that knew what I was doing. So the last thing I wanted to be seen is like, you know, videoing myself, which Rob was like, you need to video yourself doing this because I'm not going to be there. So videoing myself skiing off the top, I didn't want to talk to anybody really. Uh So I hardly talked to anybody in a week. And that meant that I just hunkered down from the wind, again, wind even there, on the backside of the Cairn on Kosciuszko waiting for like these teenagers to finish their their summit selfies. And they were joking (laughs) like, one down, six to go, you know, for the summits and Anyway, then I just set up this camera and went, you know, skied down, would come back up, 
do the video in a different way. And um, it was fun and silly. And then after that, and then I went and just ripped bump lines around the mountain the rest of the day. And then I went over to another ski resort, Parisher, and skied over there. And yeah, that was it. It was not very exciting. And, um, and it was silly and it was fun. What a unique seven summit that afterwards you go do bump runs off a chairlift. Well, Dick Bass had done that one last and I was just really clear. I didn't want to save it for last. It felt okay. it was just way too anticlimactic. So I wanted to get it done. I like that. And, and tell us a little bit why the secrecy. Um, well, because I've long felt, and I've also experimented with this <laughs> and found it to be true for whatever reason, some physics psychic combo out there could answer it better than me. But if you share your dreams too widely uh, and your plans before you do them, it's like the energy is dissipated. And so there was that piece of it. And it was really a personal challenge. I wasn't doing it for any level of you know fame or notoriety. It was a truly a personal challenge. It was an experience I wanted to have to see, you know, the back to that I wonder. Um, I've always loved to travel and be in other cultures and skiing is like the, been the main medium of that for me. So yeah, I didn't want to have to, and I'm also like, I started this talk off with saying that I value being authentic and that meant for me that if any time in this journey, it didn't, it no longer felt like the right project to, to continue through with, I didn't want to have to explain myself to anybody. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's very cool. Keeping that energy built up and inside you. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. So let's hit the last one. Uh, Elbrus in Russia. So 18,510 foot Mount Elbrus in Russia is the highest peak in Europe. Um, and I know there's some chairlifts and some huts. Uh, so I'm curious what your experience was like on this one as well. So <laughs> traveling in Russia is an amazing experience. And with everything that's going on right now, it's, um, unfortunate and on so many levels and it's probably something that's off limits for a lot of people to experience in the foreseeable future but the culture over there is uh it's really extraordinary in that in the mountain culture that i've been able to experience right the first trip we accessed siberia through russia and got to be friends with some amazing russians who were literally professional mountain climbers under the Soviet regime. Oh, wow. And also like PhD scientists, because that's the way that it was when you were like a federally sponsored athlete. You also kind of had to have another reason and purpose when you're in the mountains. Um, wow. So, so we got to know, know some amazing individuals um, in Russia who helped organize our trips and go up the mountains with us uh, in on that trip. And then, in the Altai, they came with us. And then um, this one individual, Nikolai, did the same organization for us when we went back to the Caucasus Mountains to ski Elbrus. And that was in 2005. It was June of 2005. It was the first of the seven summits after Denali. So the first after I had decided to do the seven summit project. And um, traveling over there with a guy like Nikolai, who has this really kind heart and this fun, mischievous, adventurous side. Um, (laughs) There were all sorts of surprises, like at every corner for us. It was really awesome. Um, And that included an acclimatization up this hanging valley, which had an old 
army station, basically, one of the places, Ulu Tau. It was one of these camps where he had trained as a youth. Weird. So, yeah, we went in this, like, army truck up a vertical truck lift to access this hanging valley. And we stayed in some barracks up there in this otherwise um, really decrepit and run down an old um, mountaineering training center. And we climbed and skied around there to acclimatize. And then we went up. To, I really wanted to check out what it was like at that ski area. So uh-huh. as another, although our intended route to climb and ski was around the other side, was on the north side. Okay. So we went to the south side to the ski area of Elbrus. We took those lifts up one day and got to the top of the lifts and then went for a ski tour as high as we felt like we could with the time we had. Mm-hmm. that day so we got really high rob and i probably got to i don't know at least like fifteen thousand feet or something we got really high wow um, and we got really bad headaches and we Ooh. skied back down and in time to catch the lifts down so that was a crazy cool experience to see it from that side That's and then cool. we got in this um little russian jeep and drove for a day and a half or so around to the north side whoa and um walked all the way up from from the river bottom on that oh, side. Oh wow. What so was, the, what, was what was the vert for you? Oh, I don't know the entirety of it. Um a long long Big. long way. Like yeah. Yeah, I don't know, 10,000 feet or more. Wow. Mhm. Wow, it's a big walk. And how many days did you do it in? Two. Two two, two to the top. Yeah. Two to the top. Wow. Yeah, two to the top and then um a storm came in as we were skiing off the top. Storms come from the south, so we hadn't seen the storm, but we had had like six days of good weather or something, so we all know what happens after that usually. Oh, yeah. Um, And the storm came in from the south, so it was really incredibly crazy. You don't want me to use the word intense again (laughs) at the top (laughs) up there, but man, the storm was coming in, and you you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and the wind was blowing, and it was starting to precipitate, and um, we skied off the top down the north side. Um, away from the storm, basically, and into every kind of snow you can imagine, right? It was icy Oof. off the top, and then it was some wind hammered, and then um, it was breakable, and then it was really nice powder for a little bit. Nice. And then it was corn, and then we got down to the bottom of it and got stuck for two full days waiting out, just gale force storm. Whoa. Wow. So your timing was good. It was good. That's great. Wow. And that's so common in high altitude skiing is you just get every kind of snow imaginable. Yeah. Uh, it is hard to get your confidence up to really rip it. Yeah. That one, we actually could really rip parts of it, but it changes so quickly that you can't afford to rip it because you're going to move into a different kind of snow and it's going to throw you. And, you know, then the risks of getting hurt in a place like that are so real. But, you know, people who ask me, like, what's your favorite one for What's your favorite one? Which is that was my next question. <laughs> okay, which is really hard to answer. Of course. of course, it's like you know, what's your favorite child or dog if you have multiple <laughs> of either? But for pure skiing, I would say it's Elbrus. Oh. Like if somebody wanted to go ski one of the seven summits and they just cared to go do one, I'd say it would be Elbrus. Wow, oh, that's great info. Cool. Well, I did not expect it to be Elbrus. So that's really cool. I mean, the favorite. I, I'd really like to do that one. The favorite of the favorite would have been Everest, but not for the skiing so much. Right. The whole the overall experience, maybe, but not the snow right. itself. 
Wow. Well, that's great. I just want to mention really quick that you were a two-time free skiing champion, uh, 2004 and 2005. And I just want just tell us really quick what your experience was like uh, and where these competitions took place. Well, my experience, it was um, one of like a lot of doubt and a lot of excitement and personal challenge because I was not raised on skis. So I didn't have any of these experiences that a lot of people who get to this point in skiing have where they learn, you know, when they're two and they get to go through race programs and other kid programs. I, the first time I went out alpine skiing, I was 14 uh-huh. and yeah. <laughs> and wow. let's just say it took a while to get good at it. It took well into my twenties, if not the end of my twenties to where I could say I was really an expert at it. So it was just really exciting. It was a challenge for me because I had already been into ski mountaineering and I just wanted to push myself to the point where I felt like I could ski anything anywhere in the world. And to be fair, at that point, I did not imagine Everest, but to be uh, (laughs) far more skilled and competent, you know, at things like, like Beluka, for instance, in in Siberia. So um, there were a couple of really important people that I met on that journey and like, one I would say is Ingrid Backstrom. Oh wow! Who, who probably could have taken the title those years if she wasn't just starting to become focused on um, on filming uh-huh. with Matchstick. She did come to a couple of events, and I'll never forget that one at Snowbird where she and I were tied for first, and we were up there like in a super final. And I remember saying to Ingrid, "If there's anybody I'm going to take second to, it's you." Oh. And she said to me the most amazing example of leadership and community that I'll never forget. She said, Kit, you don't deserve to take second. You deserve to win. Wow. And that kind of spirit is like very rare. And it was a real gift from that moment because otherwise the community wasn't that welcoming because I was 34 and 35 years old. And I just jumped into this without, you know, spending years on feeder tours like other people. And so, and there's not that many spots for women in this sport, or there certainly weren't then. So to have, you know, an older woman out of nowhere, you know, 10 years older than most of my competitors and, um, you know, be constantly on the podium was tough. And it was a point series title. So it really meant consistency and, Mm. and learning how to push myself and, hopefully pick a line that I was able to ski without a mistake because you don't get any mistakes in those things. It's different than the films. Nothing gets edited out. No, yeah. No, it's, it's brutal. Uh, I, I was competing at the same time. I, I think we competed at some of the same comps. Uh, I didn't travel that much, but I did the big ones like Snowbird and Kirkwood and, and some yeah. of the others. And uh, I was terrible uh, back then, especially because I didn't start skiing until I was 18. And so I, I was not very old at that point. And oh man, I, I, yeah, they're really difficult. I, I yeah. never felt comfortable. I, I never did that great either. And so I was always so impressed with people like you that did well consistently. Uh, and did you only do compete for two years and you won both years? Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, that's the way to do it. Um, Snowbird, Kirkwood, Lazark in France, um, Blackcomb, Whistler. Uh, I did one non- non-world's tour top stop in red mountain bc oh man i did that one once in the fog it was rough yes I was. <laughs> the fog with captain jack yes <laughs> i love red mountain well thanks for that well let's let's keep moving here because i want to get to the arctic um so really quick 2015 national geographic adventure of the year ridiculous right uh so what is this award and how did you win it 
Well, I had no idea if this was even <laughs> that I was even under consideration for it. So I was incredibly surprised and honored when I got that phone call. And it was largely awarded to me because of a project that I did in 2014. So the year before in the Arctic. So my first trip to the Arctic refuge was in 2010. Um, I put together a group of athletes from the North face, um, all women, except for our cameraman and videographer. And uh, we went up there to try and climb and ski a bunch of the highest mountains up there. And then I really wanted to ski out across the coastal plain to finish on the Beaufort Sea and the Arctic Ocean, because I wanted to experience the coastal plain. How long is that plain? Um, <clears throat> the Brooks Range, as it stretches like east to west across most of northern Alaska, that far northeastern corner, the mountains are only about 60 miles from the ocean. Oh, wow. And then as soon as you get like 80 or 100 miles west, the mountains are well over 100 miles from the ocean. Wow, that's a long crossing. So on that trip, as I was waiting to fly in into the mountains, I happened to meet this person, Matt Nolan, who's a PhD glaciologist from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who was doing ongoing at that point, I think he was 13 years into it, annual measurements on the McCall Glacier related to uh, the snow depth, the glacial depth, the rate of melt, and uh, trying to identify how much longer there will be glaciers up there because they will be gone. Uh, what he would say is most of them except little bits of the biggest ones will be gone in a hundred years. Wow. And so that was now, now we're down to 80 something. Okay. Um, and anyway, I met him and then he asked, he was kind of like, who is this woman who's coming up here to like lead this trip? And, you know, I had two little babies at home at that point, And he was like, wow, because you know, it's an incredibly remote place. And I landed on it for a few reasons. One, because I'd always wanted to go there. I had heard about the, uh, I heard about the debate of opening the coastal plain to oil and gas, and also that it's uh, an important, the, the most important calving grounds for the migratory porcupine caribou herd. And mm. so, anyway, I, I planned this trip to go up there and have this deep adventure because I didn't want to be gone from my little babies as long as it would take to go, like back to the Himalayas, for instance. And I really like that deep immersion experience and exploration. So. So we went there and met Matt Nolan and he kept in touch and he was like, will you come back and help me with some glacial research? So I went back in the summer of 2012. My job was to kind of hike, climb around to some neighboring glaciers that were hard to access and do some snow science for him. Now, at that point, he, he didn't have the skills to access those glaciers. So he was basically teaching myself and, and two friends of mine how to run this equipment. That's so cool. And walk around these glaciers with, you know, computers strapped to our chest and like 30 to 50 meters of cable out on different oscilloscopes trying to gauge the depth of ice left out there. And wow. um, our data wasn't that great. <laughs> oh, no. But we tried. And so we kept in touch. And the end of 2013, I said, hey, I want to go back up there. And I know that didn't work out. How can I help? So in 2014, I secured a grant from National Geographic's Expeditions Council to go back up there with Matt Nolan. He didn't go into the field with us that time, but I went with a small team with two friends and I carried a differential GPS with me. Matt, Matt's idea, the basis of the scientific research was that I would measure topographic points that he could then measure also from the sky and prove this new method of aerial photogrammetry, which he had devised 
that would work better than this other way that he had sent us out with this oscilloscope and all this cable and computers. So now he could do it with DSLR cameras from the sky and he calls it FODAR. It's a style of aerial photogrammetry. So I said, well, hey, can we measure the highest mountains? Because that's what I'd like to do. And I think I've skied one of them, but the maps had differing answers as to what was the highest. Ah. So he said, sure. And let's also measure some different rock outcrops in other places so that I can have more data points. So we did that. And um, that meant that I made a second ski descent of Mount Easto, which we now know is the highest. And I made a ski descent of Chamberlain, which had already had his first ski descent, but it was my first. And that data then proved what were the highest mountains. So then that just took me into the next, you know, six, eight years where I had realized then from our work, which turned into a full peer-reviewed scientific paper in the journal Cryosphere of what are the highest mountains in the U.S. Arctic. So now all the maps have been changed. Wow, <laughs> congrats. That's data. so cool. Yeah. And so that meant that um, now I knew what were the five highest mountains and Mount Hubli is the second highest and it hadn't had a ski descent. And I had already skied the first, third, fourth, and fifth, some of them twice. So I went back this year and with the objective to climb and ski Mount Hubli, but mm -hmm. then also to measure the snow depth out on the coastal plain, because over the years of being there and even when I'm home and immersed in the realities of opening the coastal plain to oil and gas drilling and the legislation around it. And I lend my voice to the advocacy for protecting it from that. I'm just aware that we have this nine inch average in the mandate of what needs to exist across this 1.5 million acre coastal plain. How do you measure across that kind of expanse in the first place? But um, yeah, that snow depth has to be in place in order for these extractive heavy equipment to travel over it. And if it's not, then you have damage to the tundra and the permafrost underneath it, which then uh, increases the melting of the permafrost, which is contributing methane gas to the atmosphere and perhaps as much as doubling the CO2 being released into the atmosphere Oof. from the numbers that we would have without the permafrost melting. So anything that we would be doing that would increase the permafrost melting just seems um, like now a much different conversation than the original like wilderness for the sake of wilderness. Now we're talking about, we still are talking about the social justice piece of allowing people like the Gwich'in who have lived in harmony with the caribou and dependent upon the caribou for thousands of years. There's so many issues to look at the coastal plain uh, extraction industries around, but I think the one everybody can rally around is climate change. So anyway, I guess I jumped a little bit over on the timeline. No, this is this is a perfect segue. I, I wanted this is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That's what yeah. I want to hit. So 2014 was that scientific piece that National Geographic, uh, ad, ex, whatever Adventurer of the Year, I guess it was. Um, and to be fair, I was one of a few Adventurers of the Year. That's how they do it, but um, still, it's a big honor. And it was primarily for that work in 2014, but I've been continuing with it. Well, congrats for the adventure of the year. It's amazing to me. I mean, I think that to me, that's the coolest possible award there is. I mean, it just I don't know, had the ring to it, the National Geographic, the adventurer, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's no light uh, competition either. Uh, right. So there's some some heavy hitters out there that are, are in there with you. So congrats on that. That's yeah, so cool. including and Hillary I, Nelson. 
including Hillary Nelson. Well, that's, yeah. that's so cool. I love that. Come full circle. And that you're doing it in a way that is helping to preserve a, a very important and very special place for us. And I thought Men's Health Magazine had this quote about you that I thought was really uh, just resonated a lot with me. And here's the quote. Her love of skiing remote and technical lines has evolved into a sort of extreme eco-activism. And that is just, do you agree with that? That's, that's to me, that's such an awesome, powerful quote. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought to use a word like eco-activism, but sure, it resonates. <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, so let's just hit it right on the head before we move on. What is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge? And, and, and you've pointed to it before, but why is it so important? Well, it's the largest wildlife refuge in our wildlife refuge system. It's 19.6 million acres in the northeast corner of Alaska. Wow. It's roadless, trailless. There's no bridges. There's no signs. It's truly a rare, the only place of its size and pristine intact ecosystem that is left in the United States of America. And it is a federal land. So it's everybody's public land. It is in Alaska. So there are people in Alaska who would say, you know, stay out of Alaska. Um, <laughs> but it is um, not state land. It's federal land. And it's incredibly important for a lot of reasons. And as difficult as it is to get there and totally inhospitable most times of the year, it's also fragile. And it's um, experiencing climate change at a far greater rate than we are anywhere lower than that. And uh, it's really like the canary out there. And yeah, I've only seen pictures, but I know it's a very special place. Uh, we have some friends who have visited it and it has been opened, I think, at least on paper to oil and gas exploration, uh, which it wasn't until, I don't know, the last presidential administration, I believe. Yes. What happened in December of 2017 in what was called the Tax and Jobs Act, mm -hmm. it was uh, an effort at the very end of that year to balance the proposed budget. And so the idea that the Trump administration was able to pass through a vote of Congress was that the revenue from opening the oil and gas extraction and lease sales on the coastal plain would offset the tax cuts that were proposed. And that's not the case. The companies that bid on the, there's two required leases under that act and the companies who bid on the first one, which is the only one that's taken place so far, have all pulled out. Mm, good. And now we have um, all the major banks in the U.S. and now many insurance companies also refusing to fund and support those activities out there. And hopefully so, that continues. Yeah, yes, hopefully it does continue. But the bigger piece is that we need a reversal of the, that congressional mandate. And is that something that you have been working on? Yes, I'm a board member for Alaska Wilderness League. And so in that capacity, I do. And that's something that I hope to bring greater awareness to um, with this film. And what can we do to help with that process? We can all be educated and then take some action, reach out to your congressional representatives and let them know that you would like to see this repealed. Terrific. Well, thank you for that. Well, let's jump to our last thing because we've gone over time. I hugely appreciate you. So in 2019, you were inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, which is amazing. And congratulations. And how did it make you feel? 
incredibly humbled and honored. And yeah, you, the National Geographic piece is big and this piece is even bigger. So it's kind of mind blowing when you just are living the life and, you know, we've touched upon it before. There's, you know, you're just going along doing what feels right to you and, and it's not looking for any accolades any fame, any notoriety, just living your path. And then to have others recognize that it's an important path because it's helped them dream and imagine and push themselves and do something bigger, then that's what makes it really rewarding. Fantastic. Great answer. Uh, So the last question is, what's next? What is next for you and your journey? Oh, what I don't actually know the answer to that right now. <laughs> and you heard me already say that giving it away is um, give some of the power away. And I can honestly say in this exact moment, I'm, I'm kind of in an unknown. It is time to be making plans for this winter. But I did just accept a nomination for becoming president of Alaska Wilderness League wow. uh, Board of Directors. I care deeply about that that area um, and these major areas in Alaska in which Alaska Wilderness League works. So um, that's kind of a side piece, just another piece of me, right? Like in the mountains, I don't plan on stopping. Hillary's passing is giving me great pause and making me be in the moment. I'm not exactly sure where I'll go next, but the thing is, is I always tell people when like they ask me, how do you, I get to do what you do? How can I be a sponsored athlete and a professional at this? And when I say you have to do what you do at the highest level, because it's what you love to do, not because you'll ever get anything for it, which I think is something that my dad taught me early on. So I will keep doing what I do because I love it. And I would be doing what I do right now because I love it. Whether I had any influence or um, compensation for it, that's the truth. And that's all I can answer right now because I am a big state of unknown and I don't know. It's a great state to be in. I think so. uh, Because anything is possible. And especially with you, Kit. Kit, that's all I've got for you. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share here at the end of the show? Just that it's been a privilege and it's always kind of uh, interesting that, you know, when you're just living this life that people want to hear your stories. And so, you know, thank you. And if you want to hear any deeper stories than these, then I did write a book called Higher Love, Climbing and Skiing the Seven Summits, and it's available through the Mountaineers. And I will be ordering it this afternoon uh, because I very much want to hear more. Uh, Kit, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. just I'm blown away. These stories have been terrific. So thank you again and and have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. You too. Have a great winter, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the snow brains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Gunnison Crested Butte. If you're a diehard skier, you've probably heard of Crested Butte, Colorado. Located deep in the heart of the Rocky Mountains at the literal end of the road, the Gunnison Valley that looks like a scene in a snow globe. The extreme terrain of Crested Butte Mountain Resort has been the stuff of legend for decades. But don't take our word for it. 
Come ski it for yourself. Learn more at gunnisoncrestedbutte.com. Today's episode of the Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area, home of the biggest average annual snowfall in the Rocky Mountains. This episode of the Snowbrains podcast was edited by Jared White, music by Chad Crouch. And I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.